I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. And I'm Harvinder Vadva. We're the hosts of Inappropriate Questions, and we're back with Season 3. With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like... Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk? Is it okay to ask a co-worker how much do you make? Should you ask a polyamorous person, do you get jealous? Inappropriate Questions Season 3. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Isabelle Racicot. And I'm Martine Saint-Victor. Welcome to Seat at the Table. Each week, we bring you honest and intimate conversations with guests shaping pop culture and the media. This week, we speak to Alex Penella, Washington correspondent for the Canadian press, about coverage of the White House and the soap opera that it has become. Mm-hmm. But first... Please welcome Adrian, Rosemary, Andrew and Ian, the new hosts of The National. After much anticipation, the CBC announced this week who was going to replace longtime anchor Peter Mansbridge. And it's not us! I know. Mm-hmm. Tragic. <laughs> but it did get us thinking, do anchors matter as much as they used to, like in the days of Walter Cronkite, Lloyd Robertson, and recently, Peter Mansbridge? This is my last broadcast as the anchorman of the CBS Evening News. For me, it's a moment for which I long have planned, but which nevertheless comes with some sadness. Old anchormen, you see, don't fade away. They just keep coming back for more. And that's the way it is. Friday, March 6, 1981. This has been the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Each of you, courage. For the CBS Evening News, Dan Rather reporting. Good night. That's it for now in World News Tonight. Have a good evening. I'm Peter Jennings. Thanks and good night. And that's the kind of day it's been this Thursday, September the 1st, for all of us at CTV News. Good night. So, that's The National for this Friday night. For CBC News, I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for watching. Thanks for watching all these years. Goodbye and good night. We invited three guests to the table ahead of the CBC announcement to debate the changing role of the anchor. We have Deborah Arbeck, a veteran reporter and currently anchor of the CBC Montreal News at 6. Hello. Hello. Stéphane Bureau is an award-winning journalist at Radio-Canada. At 34, he became anchor of the flagship newscast Le Téléjournal at Radio-Canada, which is like the French version of The National. Mm -hmm. He left the anchor chair just before turning 40 and is currently hosting the national radio show Medium Large. Hello, Stéphane. Hello to you. And Justin Ling has been the Canadian Features Editor at Vice News for just over two years. Before that, he was in the Parliamentary Press Gallery for nearly four years. And Justin joins us from Toronto. Hello, Justin. Good afternoon. Thank you. Let's start with Deborah. Let's talk about what the anchor role is because you practice it here in Montreal every night. I do. I do. And I have been for the last almost 20 years, yeah. actually, in Montreal. Um, it's not what many people think it is. Many people think I come into work at around four o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> to prepare for a six o'clock newscast. And part of that is taken up doing hair and makeup. <laughs> But it's not. I am an editorial voice at uh, CBC Montreal. 
my day starts early in the morning with reading what's going on in the news, watching what's going on in the news, making my way in, talking about the stories that we're going to be following throughout the day with my team, uh, writing. Uh, I'm a mentor to many of our younger journalists. I'm vetting scripts. So the day is very, very full editorially. And then on the air, what I like to think I am is a conduit to our audience. I'm a familiar face. Mm. I'm a friendly person that they come to every night that hopefully they trust to get their news. Mm-hmm. And Stefan, does that resonate with you? This is a role you had years ago. Well, and- I certainly can vouch to the amount of time we're investing in the job. I was. I used to wake up at 8. We had our first meeting at 8.30. Uh, of course, I was on the phone, but my newscast was at 9 for the first version of it for the uh, RDI, the uh, 24 Hours News yeah. Network we have in French. And then uh, on Radio-Canada at 10 o'clock, the, the official version of the newscast. So I would go to bed at midnight and during the day was a full day. As to whether or not we're relevant, I think, yes, we are as familiar faces that we can relate to or that people can relate to, uh, that they can trust. But I think that, generally speaking, it's a declining business model. And that's why I decided to to do something uh, beside the fact that I thought I was not the Mm -hmm. right person for the job and I didn't want to invest the next 25 years in in that job uh, because things are moving so fast that the, the whole concept of what you are able to bring at the table or at the bedside table, for that matter, at 9 mm-hmm. o'clock or 10 o'clock, that will add to what you already know yeah. is something I was talking with my people at the time, and we still have not resolved. What do you bring to the equation? That we don't get on the internet. Exactly. Well, and that we don't get, you know, there are so many sources, not only the internet. Uh, you can listen to the news on the radio. You yeah. can have great interviews on the radio as well or on the internet. You can watch TV all the time. So what is that concept of a mass, you know, Mm -hmm. this quasi-religious event once in the day where you are to look at the Grand Priest and say, well, Mm -hmm. Grand Priest, what do you bring tonight? Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, uh, I would not bring enough to the bedside table. Uh, yeah. And that's why I decided to, to explore something else. And, and I grew pursue up, personal projects, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I grew up uh, in a household where my father would come home from work and we'd open the television and watch the news. Like, it was a ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin, um, you know, there's this whole new generation now that is, I think, consuming their news differently. Do you, do you sense that this ritual is now gone? You know, no, it's not gone. I mean, maybe the ritualistic part of it is, you know, the sitting in front of your TV for the 9, 10, 11 o'clock newscast. Yeah, that's gone. But I, I think kind of the urge to, you know, at a certain point of the day, sit down and go, I'm going to catch up with what's going on. That hasn't gone away. I don't think it actually will. You know, we talk about, um, you know, changing appetites in terms of, you know, news consumption. Definitely they're changing, but they're not lessening. Um, so this idea that, you know, it, it, the news has to arrive in a package at, you know, 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock uh, brought to you by your news delivery person, I think is is, is, is outmoded as waiting for the, the guy to bring you your, your jug of milk in the morning. Or the newspaper, I suppose, is actually probably more 
more accurate mm-hmm. uh, comparison. And this is to say nothing of, you know, the talent or the quality of, you know, our anchors and our newscasters. Obviously, they're all, you know, superb journalists, editors, producers, um, including Deborah. I mean, I remember, you know, watching Deborah on the CBC News when I lived in Montreal. And, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so to say nothing about your quality, you know, I, I think it ultimately just comes down to the fact that just the format is something we have left unchanged for some, you know, 60-odd years. And I think exactly. that comes to a, a real problem. I mean, there's nothing else in the news business. We've left so unchanged in so long. And I think that's something we really need to look at and, and completely overhaul. I mean, you know, why do we have anchors? We have anchors because we needed someone to fill time while we changed the newsreel. Um, you know, that's mm. not a problem anymore. But, um, but also there but, but, were, you know, a phase that you could trust. And that is relevant. Yeah. I can think, uh, I still think it's important, but it's not as important as it used to be. Uh, certainly in a world where the sources are so numerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, at yeah. a time where you had tree networks and things were, in fact, very slow, the anchor was that conduit. Mm-hmm. You, you wanted to relate to a personality and also to experience. Nowadays, I think you don't necessarily need that in order to get acquainted with the topic of the day. It does depend on what you're talking about because you're talking about two different things, right? You're talking about either uh, having a show with an anchor, a traditional news show, Supper Hour News, Telejournal, mm-hmm. The National, or you're talking about picking and choosing and, and, and on getting an on-demand mm-hmm. uh, on demand news. So when you're talking about a supper hour newscast, if you're going to go anchorless for a half hour, it's very difficult to keep an audience for that long. And that's the role that an anchor plays. Mm-hmm. We're, not, we're not just sort of traffic cops. We do voiceovers and, and, and interviews and, and, and talkbacks with our reporters often out in the field. I mean, we're journalists as well. That's so right. mm-hmm. so it's, it, it depends whether you're talking about having a show that's anchorless or if you're talking about the changing industry as right. a whole. Well, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is what do we want our evening newscast to be? So you know, whether it's 6 o'clock, 10 o'clock, you name it, um, do we want it to be a recap of the day's events? And, and if so, I mean, that, that's an entirely legitimate thing to want to do because you're not going to get every piece of news throughout the day and some people want a recap or people who have been busy all day. Or You need some at some point a digest. Um, my question there is why have an anchor? You know, the, the premise of journalism is show, don't tell. Why do we have someone in a studio explaining the news to you when they could themselves be out in the field telling you an aspect of that story. Why but do they we are, need... But, but they are, but, but they are because more, you know more when you more. Because when you see an anchor in Port-au-Prince after the earthquake, you know that means the story is huge. Yeah. When you see an mm-hmm. anchor go to Mosul, it's because you know the story. But then again, I'll only talk for me. I've been in the field as an anchor. I've done a lot of things. And there is a part of it that's also very much... Uh, Show. A testament yeah. to the need for show business. Yes, for yeah. sure. Uh, as an anchor, if sure. I'm to be there for 24 hours, I know I'll get on the story, but not as much. Mm-hmm. But we're saying something about we're in the field as well. Exactly. Right. And right. Uh, right. is it relevant? I'm not sure. I'm not right. sure that I make a difference as an anchor if I yeah. go in Botswana for 24 hours or show up at the, the Vatican for the crowning of the new pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good show business, but I'm not sure I will bring anything new or super relevant to the uh, person watching my newscast. And, and so, you know, it's it's funny because you know, Vice News has launched in the United States on HBO um, a television show without anchors. It, 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 is, it is kind of strung together by voiceover. The stories that don't have visuals, we do illustrations or, or somehow figure a way to, um, to illustrate it without, you know, 
uh, actual video, uh, and we have reporters in the field uh, every night. It, it broadcasts, you know, every, every night of the week, and it, it's actually worked quite well. You, we've actually kind of found that it's compelling for a half hour without an anchor. And when uh, when a news story breaks, when a big news story breaks, how do how do you deal with that then? That's a good question. Uh, because <laughs> you know, as to? an anchor, well, we do actually. You know, supper hour newscast deal with breaking news all the time. And and people do want to know what's going on in their city. So, you know, if there's a, a major story that breaks, that's my job. I'm the one who brings it to you, and I have to do it with a level head and and with poise. And and I'm not sure that you can get that from the type of show that you're describing. You might I, well be right. I, I think yeah. that's, that's, that's <laughs> fine. It's two different types of show. But when there's a major story like say, Lac-Megantic, yes, I went up there and did our shows live. Um, it was a horrible tragedy, and many people were affected, and I was a journalist on the ground mm. and an experienced journalist on the ground. I think there was a reason to have me up there, and it wasn't show business. You know, so there, yes, there are times I agree that uh, an anchor in the field can be more of a distraction than, than helpful, but, but I agree with you 100%. I'm not saying that the model of the anchor is gone. I think the authority that the anchor at one time had is sort of gone. Mm-hmm. And the numbers are showing it. People are not relying on that source, that only source to get informed. I think that is a dying, or if it's not dead already, business model. I think we'll still see anchors. They're important. They're, they bring the story. We can relate to them. Are they ever going to be what they used to be 30 years ago when Walter would take yes. off his glass and say... And that's the way it is. Friday, March 6th, 1981. Good night. Uh, yeah. That is gone. Yeah. Uh, because and the prestige that comes with it. You're right. But then again, if you're in it for the prestige, it's a boring yeah. job to yes. do. And I but, don't think yeah. so. no. but also, it's funny that you bring up authority, Stefan, because since Trump has been elected, there has been a resurgence in popularity of Dan Rather. His Facebook posts have become manifestos, and mm-hmm. they are read by millions. And I believe that it's because in all this noise to have Dan Rather, who's been off the air for 11 years, to hear his voice comes as comfort. And so I think the anchor does still have this authority, this this. I think right? it's because he's a little off the rail. I mean, he's been an anchor and he was constrained by the fact that he was an anchor. And right. now mm-hmm. you're seeing this guy who for 30 years or 40 years was wearing the CBS coat and was, you know, mm-hmm. close to perfect. And now he's, I wouldn't say he's off the rail, but he's just free. Exactly. And That's it's right. such super surprising to hear him say things like the things he's saying. Of course, it's yeah. relevant, but it's also surprising. Oh, grandfather is still very much alive. And, and, and he has opinions. <laughs> of course, and he has opinions. And, you know, which is yeah. something which is, we, we, we don't have. Right? Exactly. Yes, we anchors, don't have legs right? so and I we don't have opinions, theoretically. Theoretically. Maybe if you're at CNN. It's a different. I think there's one, there's one figure here that I, I think is a really interesting kind of uh, archetype for, for, for the anchor, and it's uh, Edward R. Murrow. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck.
a guy who um, you know, presided over just an incredible part of American history with the House Un-American uh, Activities Committee. What we think of as an anchor, you know, a guy behind a desk smoking a cigarette with a glass of scotch in his hand. But he was not an anchor as we imagined. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> he's, you know, he's not a Peter Mansbridge anchor. He didn't host the evening news. He hosted almost a position show. Um, he hosted a show that was curated by him, hosted a show that, that brought a very clear point of view, that brought a very clear story, that, that really was more of an investigative journalism outfit than a traditional kind of anchored newscast. And I, I think that's a really interesting concept because I think the idea of anchor as, you know, air traffic control or as, um, you know, somebody who's kind of mediating the news is kind of a, I, I think that it really is going away. I think the idea of having the anchor be somebody who can um, kind of contextualize the world mm-hmm. for you and help mm-hmm. bring it to you in a very specific format and I, I think, you know, a well, very, it's funny a cur- you're mentioning that yeah. because there's a Canadian you probably are familiar with, Ashley Benfield. She was mm-hmm. very much that type of anchor during the Second Gulf War. That's mm-hmm. right. And she had that NBC show or yeah, yeah, CNBC yeah, 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 yeah. show at the time that That's was right. literally revolutionary. And she was brutally taken out of the air. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't the she right time. Re-em- yeah, <laughs> yeah. She reemerged like 10 years after out of the spin cycle. And she was another personality altogether. She's now, you know, uh, very much in. In the line. norm in yeah. line tamed, uh, the, uh, tamed yeah. is the least we can say mm. and she was impersonating exactly what you're talking about but then again Morrow uh, came to a brutal end as well I mean he was not the kind of person you wanted to have around when people started to realize that he had a uh, a different kind of influence than the one he was intended to, uh, to have. Uh, for yeah, sure. Exactly. I, you know, and I think this needs to exist within the confines of responsible journalism. I don't think we need more blowhard talking heads on TV. I think we have plenty already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but it's I not think the same a, thing. Exactly. But, you know, I think Christine Amanpour is, is, is a great example. You know, mm-hmm. somebody who, or, you know, for, maybe to a different degree, Fareed Zakaria. I mean, these shows that are, um, you know, a little bit outside the news of the day, these shows that say, you know what, we have 24-hour news now. Um, we have even 24-hour local news networks but and don't do, Justin, they don't do news broadcasts. It's no, different. Fareed Zakaria has a very, very precise uh, uh, mandate, international news. Yeah, same I with, agree. Same with Christian Amanpour. That is their, their, that is their specialty. But when we when, describe the evening newscast, it kind of sounds like we want it to be everything to all people. We want it to be, you know, a zoom out, a, you know, a contextual look at the news of the day. But we also wanted to do breaking news. We also want local news. We also want international. It can't be everything anymore. It, it used I think, to be, I think it, you're right, actually, Justin. Though. I think that's you are right. And I think a lot of us are grappling. We, we had to redesign our show um, with the cuts uh, at CBC a couple of years ago, and uh, we were cut down from 90 minutes to 30. And at the time, we had meetings across the country about how we were going to develop new shows, and we were all given sort of carte blanche. We could all decide what our shows were going to look like. And they brought up the idea of, you know, what your show might look like without an anchor. And it, it to us at the time, it didn't make sense. But what did make sense was that we wanted to move our shows more in a direction of context. So as you say, like, I'm not sure that the shows of the future, if we do have a future, are your nightly sit down where you get every story, you know, seven stories mm-hmm. that tell you what's happened throughout the day. I think I think it's going to change. I think there's going to be a shift <laughs> towards more more contextualized uh, news and 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 more interviews, perhaps it, it, it's, it's got to change because as you, you know, as we all know, the model is not working. I have a question for you, Deborah. Do you feel like the journalists that are starting or coming up all hope to one day be an anchor like it was like, I think, 20 years ago when I worked in a newsroom, the journalists, most of them were hoping to get that anchor job one day in their life? 
I don't think so. I think it's changing, actually. I, I'm, I, frankly, I, I never thought that I would be a TV anchor when I went through journalism school. That wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell people stories. And, and, and I started out as a news reporter and, and then became an anchor. So I, I, I see young people coming out of school and I'm worried about their future. I don't know where it's going. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially if they do choose television because it's such a, a model that's <laughs> changing. Resources are tough. It's, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's, not, it's not the business that it once was. But I, I don't feel that they, they most anyway, I can't speak for all, but mm-hmm. I don't see them as seeing it as a glamour job. I don't see them as saying, oh, I want to be a news anchor. They, when they come into the CBC and they intern with us or when I go to Concordia University and, and speak to students, it, it, it's about journalism. Mm. So Telling that's stories. that's that's yeah. that's but, encouraging. But the news broadcasts still represent the flagship of a network, do they not? Does the, the, is the anchor no longer the face of the network? Still, I, I think. think we are. Yeah, yeah I think we are. I'm sure. still old school, and I like to have an anchor. Same. I feel just more comfortable. It's a, a face that's familiar. I go to to just understand better the world. Or you know, I, I to me, it's so important. I would be very, very destabilized if there I, were not. I feel the same way. And also, I don't know. At one point, we're going to have to say stop saying we're old school and say we're just old. <laughs> you know, I refuse. <laughs> Justin, don't say a word on this. <laughs> Question for all three of you: In 20 years, yes or no, do we still have anchors? Deborah? Yes. yes. Stefan and Deborah have both oh, yes. said yes. Of course. Justin? On the evening news, I don't think so. Not in the way we have them now. I think there will be a role for anchors always, but I think they're going to be playing a very different job. So the answer is kind of no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not surprised. <laughs> That was Deborah Arbach, who anchors the News at Six on CBC Montreal, with Stefan Bureau, former anchor of Le Téléjournal of Radio Canada and Justin Ling, who is the Canadian Features Editor at Vice News. Let's stay in the media, because Martine and I were wondering, what's it like to cover Washington as a journalist right now? Well, joining us from Washington is Alex Panetta. Alex is the D.C. correspondent for the Canadian Press National News Agency. He covers U.S. politics as well as Canadian-U.S. relations. Welcome to the table, Alex. Good to be here. Give us a sense of what it's like to have a president who uses Twitter for official statements, obviously not only from nine to five. So you have him on on alert, I presume. Explain to us how that works. Yeah, it, it just essentially creates a 24-hour news cycle. I never thought I would do this, but I, I actually uh, I started trying to learn to computer program so I could then download all of the president's tweets and then to analyze them through some kind of algorithm that I didn't obviously write. But I, mm-hmm. And just say, when, when is he tweeting? What time of day? When does he tweet negatively? When is he angriest? All et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just fascinating. I never would have believed that I would try to di- decipher presidential Twitter to the degree that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's incredible. I mean, it's imp- like, This is one of the most powerful people on earth, so obviously his Twitter feed matters. And just But to do give you, you sleep, a, Alex? Yeah, well, anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> It's like a hangover that never ends. <laughs> the, so just to give you an example of the Twitter feed, so I was speaking with uh, somebody uh, in, I believe it was South Carolina, who, uh, who talked to me about how he wrote a program that basically uh, bought or sold stocks anytime the president tweeted about a company. 
right? So mm-hmm. his Twitter feed can move markets. It can start wars. It's, it's uh, quite, uh, it is something. But you say that you have this program. So what trend do you see? Like, does he tweet more in the morning, more at night? So it, it seems uh, pretty consistent. By far, uh, his, his most active uh, Twitter time of the day is from about 6.30 to 9.30 a.m. The, the question I have is, and I don't have an answer to this, is, is this intentional? Is it his goal of driving the message for the day? I mm-hmm. think there's a certain part of that. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's the time of day that he's got time on his hands and he's watching <laughs> Fox and Friends and he gets angry and he reacts <laughs> to the TV. Yeah. I believe that there's, there's some method to the madness, but there's also madness to the madness. <laughs> but take us back at the time of the campaign, because apparently you uh, had told your wife at the time you were working so hard uh, because we never knew what was going to happen from day to day with uh, Trump. You told her, wait, honey, you know, Hillary's going to come <laughs> in and all will be fine. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't put it that way. But what I said was, <laughs> So before the election, she's like, I can't handle this. Like every single day you're watching, like basically Donald Trump on TV 24-7. You're constantly reacting to things that he's tweeting. It's like, I, like it's it's too much. I said, you know, he's going to lose the election. It's going to be quiet. The, the Republicans are going to are going to maintain the Senate. It's uh, possibly also the House and or sorry, vice versa. It's going to and nothing's going to get done in Washington. It's going to be boring and everything. Life will return to normal. It'll be slow. So. It was like, so, okay, so basically the night of November 8th, I'm, I, I didn't sleep. I worked uh, till about, I don't know, maybe 11 in the morning. I was just writing stories one after another about the effect on Canada-U.S. relations, for instance, the, on a whole bunch of other things, on the Republican Party, the future of American politics, just, and then just obviously just writing the breaking news of what had just happened. So it's 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I, I go to bed. I try to get an hour or two of sleep. I get up and then back to work. And it was only around November 10th when I realized life was going to change. It, it's it's funny. You don't really quite get it in the moment. In the moment, you're just sort of so busy dealing with the news that you don't you don't realize uh, immediately that that your life is is going to be different. And I'm just I'm kind of lucky. My wife hasn't divorced me yet. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, w- Alex. She's, yeah. an, she's an understanding person. <laughs> but what what happened on, on November 10th? You know, the day after, two days after that that hit you that you said, okay, it's not going to be the same. Was there something specific? You know, I just I think that there was just uh, a, a moment to sit down and think and say, okay, well, mm-hmm. what's happened? What's going to happen? How does this affect the Senate, the House of Representatives, American politics, American society in general? Mm-hmm. And you know, I think on the on November 10th, if I'm not mistaken, and I think it was the day Leonard Cohen passed away because that's where I got the news. I was in front of Trump's hotel in uh, Washington D.C., and there was a huge uh, protest, yeah. and it was bitter and it was angry. It was and and then the president tweeted. Ironically enough, uh, so he tweeted something about just uh, troublemakers and provocateurs and this kind of thing. And so here you have this scenario where, okay, so people are protesting his properties, right, you know, two, three blocks from the White House, and he's attacking protesters on Twitter. So those two things right there are an indication that you're not like settling back into some, you know, old normal, that there is a new normal. You've been covering Washington for four years. So you started under uh, Barack Obama administration. And now you're under Trump. So what are the main differences between the two? Oh, where to begin? Where to well, begin? besides ideologies, <laughs> obviously. Yeah, so there's a different ideology. Uh, there's uh, one president who was extremely determined not to react to things. Barack Obama, and this is actually, some people saw this as, a, as one of his weaknesses in that he... He had this Spockian uh, demeanor about him where it's, this is illogical. I will not respond to this. I will just stick with my plan to, you know, achieve strategic outcome X, Y, and Z. Whereas uh, Trump is all reaction all the time, 
right? It's it's everything is 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 worth a tweet or a statement or yeah, mostly a tweet. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's I think that's the biggest difference. Like for instance, Barack Obama made fun of people who watched a lot of cable, you know, uh, news. The the Obama White House used to der- derisively refer to uh, Morning Joe watchers as a, right. as a, a t- TV show on MSNBC. Uh, you know, so because they thought that you know this the show didn't really add to your understanding of the world. They just basically got you excited about the headline of the day. So his point of view was, I'm not reacting to this stuff. It's yeah. insignificant. Yeah, no drama, Obama. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Whereas whereas Trump is is. He tweets about what's happening on the morning news, right? That's the right. difference. That's the biggest difference, I think, of, of that. How does it work for you as a correspondent, Alex Panetta? Do you go into Washington every single day? You have to go schmooze. You got to go drink in pubs to get information. How does it work for somebody like you? Sure. There's a bit of everything. now. So you drink I, a lot. <laughs> oh, not, not as much as I used to when I was younger in Ottawa. <laughs> the life of a foreign correspondent in the United States when you're Canadian is not like any other place because you're reporting from a country that is very close to yours, relatively well understood uh, by yours, and where there are literally thousands of reporters. I think I heard once a stat like 18,000, not sure if that's true, but a crazy number of journalists in Washington, D.C. And most of them write in English, and most Canadians read English. So it's very challenging, right, to penetrate that wall of sound mm-hmm. to, to, to deliver something new. Uh, so if you're a foreign correspondent in Venezuela, well, that's a little different because you're a valuable and rare source of information there. So the challenge I try, I, I try to overcome here is how do you make yourself valuable here? How do you add something that people wouldn't hear otherwise? So the number one thing I do, what takes up the most of my time, is I cover Canada-U.S. relations, where I'll go to Capitol Hill. It's like yesterday, I was on Capitol Hill asking people about softwood lumber and NAFTA. So I wasn't on the Anthony Scaramucci beat this week mm-hmm. um, uh, because if I don't, if I'm not there on, uh, on the hill asking these questions, there's a good chance that there would be not a single Canadian Reporting asking these it. questions in Washington. Yeah. Mm. So there were about 15 Canadian reporters here in D.C. and and you know uh, me and maybe one or two others focus on. Canada-U.S. relations. The rest just tell the U.S. story. And isn't that a little bit the narrative that's that's scary, Alex? Is that the the Scaramucci's of this world get all the headlines and the NAFTA of this world get second billing? Like last week, I had this this moment, or maybe two weeks ago, when they when the health bill died on the floor of the Senate mm-hmm. uh, right. because of McCain and uh, and Collins and Murkowski. That vote. People were saying, "How come everyone's writing about the drama in the White House? They should be focusing on this, and it's important." And they're right. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it, it affects millions of lives. It, it reorganizes one-sixth of the U.S. economy. It's a big deal, this health health debate. On the other hand, it is not often that you see the White House personnel stabbing each other in the face, not even in the back, <laughs> on, 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 on a social chest. media. It's yeah. crazy. It's mm-hmm. crazy. How do you not write about that? It's insane. Right. And I, I was talking to, um, to an espionage historian who was the curator of the International Spy Museum here. And he said his concern for the American people in the next little while, is, you know, he borrows from this old term in, in espionage, which is the ability to se- separate the signals from the noise, mm-hmm. is that the American people won't be able to recognize when an important thing has happened, whether related to the Russia scandal or anything else, because there, there's so much noise. And, and that's a concern. Alex, I have a question, because from our standpoint in Canada, we find that it's absolutely crazy what's going on in Washington. When you are there, do you feel that the people feel that it's some kind of normal? No, absolutely not. Like, I'm in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. voted, I think, 94% against Donald Trump. 
not many people like him in Washington. Mm. On Capitol Hill, not many people like him either. I mean, there's an old saying, and at the best of times, there are 535 lawmakers who think they'd be a better president than the president. <laughs> and that's that's almost Ouch. always the case, right? That's always the case. And with Trump, it's even more so. And, and the Republicans defend him vigorously on camera, but, you know, off, off, off camera and in conversations, there's you know, rolled eyeballs and... I've talked to Republicans who quit, you know, working on Capitol Hill because they just can't, they don't want to defend him. It's, it, there's, there's a lot of that too. Alex, the fact that you, you work in a town where you are under attack by the administration, but when you're sitting in the press room and you know for a fact that what you're being told is not the truth, mm. where do you go from there? You leave the press room and then what do you do? Yeah, well, you, you, you fact check everything, uh, first of all. I mean, Politicians often obfuscate. They exaggerate. They selectively present facts to, you know, to put their, their side in the best possible light. They will occasionally lie. I've never encountered a volume of falsehood like I've encountered the last you know, little while. Mm-hmm. And over insignificant things, too. Right. So, for instance, if, if the president of the United States says I, I, I spoke to the, the, the head of the Boy, Boy Scouts of America called me and said this was the best speech we ever got. <laughs> you know, if Barack Obama had said it, you'd be like, all right, sure. I mean, I'm assuming that's had to happen. <laughs> maybe, he's exa- maybe, maybe he's exaggerating, the, the, you know, the, 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 how well the call went. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, it, but, but I'm assuming it's true. Mm-hmm. In this case, you've got to call the Boy Scouts and say, did this happen? And, and and over over stuff that's easily disprovable as well, you know, exaggerating employment statistics, which you know, there's federal websites that, that yeah. keep or, track or of this. Cro- or crowd sizes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. But you did have somewhat of a, a more uh, a chummy relationship with uh, with Barack Obama. We have a clip of that. Uh, Alex, was it? Uh, let, let me just uh, note first of all that uh, the tenor of your question seems to imply that I'm old and creaky. Um, not the tenor of my answer, I hope. Uh, no, you, you managed it well. <laughs> but, but don't think I didn't, I didn't catch that. So that was Barack Obama calling on you, Alex, when Prime Minister Trudeau um, visited the White House for the first time. Give us a sense of Barack Obama's relationship with, with the media, because at the time, you guys used to complain about the Obama uh, White House, saying they were too guarded and it was tough to get information. Do you miss him? I think there were things worth complaining about. I think that there was uh, that that it wasn't always transparent. I think that there were you know there was uh, a prosecution of leakers. There uh, you know so you know it wasn't uh, by by no means perfect. Uh, but yeah, there are things worth missing. I think that things are probably <laughs> a little bit a bit worse in terms of uh, press relations with the government. But they, it's not the government's uh, responsibility to to be to to, re- to be nice to the press. It's the government's responsibility to communicate with the public to tell the truth. You know, to basically behave in a moral way. I think that all human beings have that responsibility. And, uh, and you know, and I think that when, when, a, when a president lies that often, I think that falls short of that standard. Alex, I'm the sneaky one between Martine and I. So I want to know really what's going on behind closed doors, off camera. What is being said amongst the journalists and with the politicians out there? I want to know the truth, Alex. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> off the record, it's just us. Yes, uh, it's, it's it's the greatest moment in history. Everything's amazing. Uh, so what is it? Stock market's at twenty-two thousand points. Uh, no, I think that there's a lot of speculation in this city about where this Russia scandal goes. I think that uh, the the president is starting to to really panic. People are tired. You know, uh, the joke is, when are you getting a day off? Like, when have you? When, 
I was lucky. I just took a holiday, but uh, so I, you know. But during that holiday, I just you just keep checking your Twitter, right? And <laughs> You're that's, not you know, off. And, that's, and again, you know, we want to say hello to your wife, yeah, who's about to de- divorce you. But go oh, on. The poor, the poor woman. <laughs> the, uh, so no, but and and that's the thing, right? Is you, it's always there. It's always on your mind, and it's it's very hard to shake because there's so much news every day. And so we joke about it. We kind of talk about it the way I'm talking about it with you now. We kind of like. When do you have a day off? Well, let's 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 go get dinner one night when there's like time, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and we and let you know, and we have a laugh about it. You know, we sort of, I mean, yeah, I was sitting down for dinner with a Canadian journalist back in uh, the fall after the election uh, when Trump, you know, blasted the CIA for its faulty oh, yeah. intelligence in Iraq, and we sat down, we looked at each other, saying, I, I mean, what's this is a breakdown of the American state that's going to have this is crazy. I mean, you're going to have the president against his own intelligence community. This is, I mean, I've never experienced anything like this. And so that's, I mean, there's been a lot of moments like that. Like, like just earlier this week, I was interviewing uh, Ambassador David McNaughton for a story on Softwood Lumber. And we're talking, and I, I was using my cell phone to record the interview, and I have news alerts on it. And, and you know, bing, up comes a new, oh, Anthony Scaramucci's been fired. I mentioned it. He's like, what? <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of moments like that in Washington right now. And what are the veteran journalists saying? Those who have been on the Hill for like 20 years, are they as as surprised as you are? are they, they're like saying, oh, I've been there than that. Uh, no, no one's been here, done this. <laughs> no, nobody. <laughs> no, I, no, this is something uh, quite, quite novel. Various newspapers have seen their subscriptions go up. But do you get a sense that people appreciate your work more today than they did before? What I, no, nah, I wouldn't say that. I'd feel, I'd, I'd say that there's more of a polarization in attitudes towards the press. Mm-hmm. That uh, if you read a story that is critical of the government, people who uh, like that government are much more likely to impugn your motives, threaten you. I, you know, I've gotten threats oh. on, online. I've, you know, I've somebody told me, "I hope your, I hope your house burns down with you in it." You know, I just, oh. and all I did, my crime that day was just pointing out that it was silly for, for supporters of President Trump to say he'd, there had been a, an assassination attempt on him. During, during the campaign, I don't know if you'll recall, yes. the Secret mm-hmm. Service whisked people out. It was just some guy holding a sign. And quickly, quickly, some social media trolls who, who spread conspiracy theories and falsehoods were talking about an assassination attempt and blaming the media. And one guy said, you know, a, pr- a pr- pretty prominent troll saying, oh, well, I hope that they disband the White House press gallery. That's all it took. That is all it took. For someone to say we need to break down the, the fourth estate as an institution in the country or at least get, we'll break down its access to government. Uh, uh, some, some lame, inch, untrue, you know, assassination rumor. And I said, that's scary. And so that prompted, like, you know, death threats online. I was like, it's crazy. So that, on, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you also get appreciation. And I think that uh, that's, that's a strange new dynamic. I think it always existed, uh, but it's getting a lot more acute where people love you or they hate you. You know, it's something I'm getting, uh, I'm adjusting myself to, and a lot of my colleagues are. And I hope it doesn't become um, ingrained in our culture forever because it's, it's, I think it's, it's a bad and dangerous thing. Well, that was really interesting. Alex Panetta uh, from D.C., who's a correspondent for the Canadian Press. Thank you so much for enlightening us. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. And get some sleep. <laughs> Excellent. And for, for the listeners, uh, Alex's Twitter feed really is like a lifeline. So he's at Alex underscore Panetta, P-A-N-E-T-T-A. Thanks a lot, guys. Okay, and send flowers to your wife. <laughs> That 
was interesting. I love it. We know that there are a lot of things going on behind closed doors yes. now in yes. Washington. Yes. And I've been following him for for years, Alex Mignano, on Twitter. And to, to get the, the behind the scenes yeah. taste is perfect. And for all of you listening, we're curious to find out what you think about this conversation. So don't be shy. You can write us. So send us an email, seat at cbc.ca or use Twitter at Isabel Rassico and at Martine Montreal using the hashtag ACCBC or via our Facebook page, facebook.com slash CBC's Seat at the Table. That's it for this week on Seat at the Table. I'm Martine Saint-Victor. And I'm Isabelle Racico. Seat at the Table is produced by Alan Johnson and Melissa Fandira. Technical work this week by Melanie Vien and Tanya Goncheva. Seat at the Table is a CBC original podcast. To hear more shows, visit cbc.ca slash original podcasts. Next week on Seat at the Table... Do I understand correctly that the biggest fear of a parent of a trans child is the abuse our child may have in the future? Yeah. In the real world. Yeah. Outside of the comfort so, of home. So it's, I, I, I mean, you may have, you may have seen um, the, some of the statistics. So the, the statistics yeah. are horrifying, right? So yeah. if you're a parent and you start doing some research online and you're looking around, you know, to know that uh, most trans adults uh, 40% of trans adults have attempted suicide. I mean, it, that, I mean that's just something no parent ever wants to uh, even, even, you know, go there in terms yeah. of your imagination of the future. Um, and I, so that that's one piece of it. And, and the larger piece is just the entrenched transphobia. And when you combine that, with all of the other struggles that so many people face, whether it's racism, whether it's economic insecurity, uh, you know, whether it's Islamophobia, whether it's being an immigrant, for example, these things just triple, quadruple your your capacity to um, navigate a potentially very hostile world. We have a very eye-opening conversation with Kimberly Manning, a parent of a trans child. Until then, au revoir. revoir. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.